You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Description of the Person When Last Seen July 2005 It was the summer of her chevette, of J.P. and letting her hair grow. The last summer, the best summer, the summer they'd dreamed of since eighth grade, the high and pride of being seniors lingering, an extension of their best year. She and Nina and Elise, the three amigos. In the fall, they were gone, off to college, where she hoped, by a long and steady effort, she might become someone else, a private, independent person, someone not from Kingsville at all. The sins of the Midwest, flatness, emptiness, a necessary acceptance of the familiar. Where is the romance in being buried alive, in growing old? She did not hate the town as, years later, her sister would tell one lover, not Kim, not the good daughter. She loved the lake, how on a clear day you could see all the way to Canada from the bluffs. She loved the river, winding hidden in its mossy gorge of shale down to the harbor. She even loved the slumping Victorian mansions along Grandview her father was always trying to sell, and the sandstone churches downtown, and the stainless steel diner across from the post office. She was just 18. At the Conoco, on break, she liked to cross the lot and then the on-ramp and stand at the low rail of the overpass, French inhaling menthols in the dark as traffic whipped past below, taillight shooting west into the future. Toledo was three hours away on the far side of Cleveland, far enough to be another country. Trucks lit like spaceships shuddered under her feet, dragging their own hot wind, their trailers full of unknown cargo. Slowly, night by night, the dream of leaving was coming true. With her family's blessing, their very highest hopes. She could not regret it. She could only be grateful. Stuart Onan is the author of the novels Snow Angels, A Prayer for the Dying, The Night Country, and Last Night at the Lobster. His new novel is Songs for the Missing. Thank you for joining me, Stuart. Oh, thank you. Stuart, this novel is a really interesting look at the way we define ourselves by virtue of what happens when one of us is removed. It's true. Uh, The book, I think, focuses mostly on the people left behind uh, when this girl named Kim goes missing and talks about how we see ourselves um, and, and what we think of ourselves when we lose one of the major relationships in our lives. And it's set in, in a very classic uh, American suburb. And it's a real suburb, isn't it? I actually looked it up on Google Maps, I admit. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's not quite typical and then it's right on Lake Erie. It's a small Ohio town called Kingsville between Conneaut and Ashtabula. Um, so there is a, there's a, a natural beauty there that may not you know, be the same in the rest of the country. Um, but it's, it's a small town. It's kind of a depressed town economically. And that's pointed up by one of the characters, the father of the missing girl, being a realtor. And throughout the book, lamenting the way that the market is just crashing and crashing. And now, did you visit this town? Do you live nearby? Uh, no, but uh, I, I'm from Pittsburgh originally. And as a child, I went to a camp up there. Um, So since I've been seven years old, I've been going through this town uh, during the summer. And for most people, it's just this exit off of I-90. 
It's the first exit in Ohio. And you would never think of this town ever you know, if you hadn't been there year after year after year. Could you talk about uh, creating uh, this small town and its characters in prose? Uh, when you do this, did you um, sit up and like write a, a precis of what this town was and uh, uh, a background, a syllabus, and, and create, a, I guess, a study guide for yourself? Well, for years. For years, I've been trying to write this particular story in this particular town. Um, and I've, I've approached it you know, time and again and gotten through 5, 10, 15, 25, 30 pages and never been able to somehow get completely into the life of the town. Um, there was always some other character who would pop up and become fascinating to me. Um, and then I would follow that character, and usually that turned into another novel. The Night Country, which you had mentioned before, uh, that novel came from my first attempts at writing this novel. Uh, Wish You Were Here, a novel that came out in, I think, 2002, also came from my first attempts to write this novel. So I was always trying to get to this material, but I couldn't find my way in. But in trying to find my way in, I found the town, and that town became very, very, you know, not just real since it is a real place, but also real in my imagination and very, very solid. So by the time that I finally did find my way in, about seven years after I began writing the book, um, it was all there for me. Wow. Now, I also, I also did some, uh, you know, some scouting, some location scouting. When I was there during the summers, I would drive around the roads and take pictures and talk to people and just you know, look and, and sort of like try to grab everything. That's really interesting. Was the book always about somebody who'd gone missing? Yes. It was always about a girl who worked at a convenience mart who'd gone missing. Now, is this based on a real story that you know or somebody you know? Um, it, it, not really. And yet, over the years, uh, things like this have happened in real life. And so, naturally, I've looked at those cases as well to see, you know, Katie Poyer in Minnesota is the classic case in Moose, Moose Lake, Minnesota, disappeared uh, from a convenience mart. And so I sort of folded some of that into it. But, of course, I did a lot of research on um, missing people, um, the websites of missing people all over the country. Um, it's terrible. It's really, really hard stuff, really heartbreaking stuff. Um, but to get into it was, you know, it was necessary to see, you know, what's happening out there. And the book, I hope, Cheever said of Falconer that he wanted to write a very dark book that possessed radiance. And so I'm hoping that that's true in this case, that there is some some beauty to the book and to the characters and their lives um, that sort of, you know, leavens some of the heaviness of it. Well, there's, I would say there's definitely just a kind of aching beauty in the relationships and the power of the relationships of the family. And uh, let's talk about the family. It's uh, Kim... Uh, Larson is the is the daughter. Ed Larson's the father. Fran is the mother, and Lindsay is the little sister. How did you create this family? How did you go about it? Well, I, I began, of course, with Kim and how she felt about the people in her life. Right at that particular time, when she's eighteen years old, she's about to go off to college, and she's been dying to get out of this town. She just wants to get out of Kingsville so much. I mean, it's a small town. It's natural when you're that age to want to move on to something else. And how she feels about her, her family is my first sort of clue about them. And then as I met them one by one in their sections, I learned a lot about them and, and came to see who they were. They're a very, I think, just average, regular, 
American family. And Ed, Ed is a realtor, and Fran works at the hospital um, as a sort of a clerk in the emergency room, and Lindsay goes to high school. Um, as you said, um, they're, they're not superhuman. They don't have superpowers. They're just regular folks that are faced with something that is uh, almost unbearable, and yet they have no choice. They have to somehow find the hope to keep going through the days there. And how they do that, how they do it differently, really affects how they feel about each other or one another and themselves and changes their relationships in big, big ways. One of the things I really loved about this novel was was this, all the moments in cross uh, crisscrossing moments of self-definition and definition of the self by relationship to the others. Could you talk about that kind of mirror image effect, looking at others and finding ourselves in them and also defining ourselves by our differences from the others? Well, one of the major things about this book, I think, is uh, one of the major themes is how little we know the people closest to us and how little they know us and how painful it is not to be understood by those that love us. Well, um, as this uh, novel unfolds, one of the things that you, you talk about that first comes out when we, when we meet Ed, you talk about him as ter- in terms of he's a very public person. He's the realtor. He's a very public person. He's out there. Everybody knows him. But he values his privacy. I really like that inversion in, in this man. Well, he, he trades on his name and his sort of personality in, in his public life. But really, he doesn't want anybody to sort of really know what's going on with him, um, whether that means financially um, or just emotionally. He's, he's a completely private person, really, which I think, I think most people are. In ways, uh, but Fran, on the other hand, becomes throughout the book a very public person, as she becomes sort of the, the, the the standard bearer or the carrier of their story to the media, because she needs the media. They need the media very much, and so she becomes the person who makes speeches, and who goes on television, and who goes on radio shows, and organizes fun runs and caravans and things like that. And late in the book, she says that she somehow inadvertently had become a politician, uh, which is something she had never wanted to be, because she has to show only one face to the public, which is always the sort of happy face. And it's, uh, that's the kind of neat mirror that I see, because that's exactly what Ed does. But Ed and Fran would never see themselves as sort of very similar people. And they're, they're at great odds over this public-private split. But in, in both cases, they're really private people. Let's talk a little bit about this um, disappearance, what you call uh, the, the netherworld of of uh, the heavenly netherworld of disappearances in the, the way we talk about disappeared people. One of the things that, that makes it so hard is that there is no resolution. And could you talk about how that affects the, the feelings of those around who have to experience this? Well, we're so conditioned by television and film and, and stories and storytelling that there is going to be a resolution to any problem. And yet, in life, we know that's not true. Um, and in this case, it's, it's a very dire case in which a young girl goes missing and is never found. And so in, instead of having some sort of closure or some sort of satisfying, you know, climactic emotional event um, that the family can sort of share and, and sort of put this behind them, this is something they'll never put behind them. 
Um, and so this, in a way, the book is, is the sort of the story behind the story that we see in the newspaper or that we see on 2020 or Dateline or something like that, in which there's a problem, there are suspects, there's a conclusion, and, and we say, oh, well, we've, we've learned the story. Um, this is a story or a mystery that, that sort of never, ever gets solved. You know, I th- think it's really interesting to me when, that you said that this came, the Night Country, the, the uh, book earlier book, came out of your attempts to write this book because I see them as having very similar themes, um, only you work, use two slightly different genre tropes to deal with them. In the Night Country, you use the supernatural to talk about how we haunt ourselves. And here you're using crime fiction, and essentially um, Kim becomes a ghost that haunts everybody. Yeah, and it also, along with Snow Angels, has that, that double tier. There's the, the world of the adults versus the world of the teenagers and that sort of line between them and the allegiances that you have to your own sort of group or tribe and the secrets that you have to keep um, from the other tribe, the adults keeping secrets from the children as well there and how alienating that is to sort of both sides there. But in, in this case, I don't know if it's the trope of crime fiction. It, it is in the sort of upsetting event in the very beginning um, the disappearance of Kim may signal some sort of, you know, crime fiction. But even early on, the, the focus is always going to be on the characters. The mm-hmm. focus is always going to be on their relationships with each other and on a sort of the, the missed connections between, and again, how little they know each other and how little, in, in fact, they know themselves. Right. It's a very literary novel in that sense, even from, you know, the very first section, the first paragraph in which Kim says, you know, she, she wants to be someone else. Right. Which, of course, we know, you know, that's never going to happen. One of the, the things that, that I, I really liked about this, could you talk about um, some of the, uh, the, the coping mechanisms that have come up in our society uh, for the reactions to disappearances? I mean, these, these websites are, are just... Um, they're they're really heartbreaking. Yeah, there are websites that that people who have, have lost or or missing loved ones have put up there, and also blogs that go on for years, for years and years. When when almost anyone else would have stopped or given up, the the parents and the siblings of these missing people will continue to write about you know their efforts to bring these people back, and you know they're out there on the web, sort of everywhere. And there's also an almost um, institutionalized reaction to these. You know, kinds of disappearances in which the entire town comes out, the church groups come out, everyone searches for them. Um, they, they involve the local media, the local papers, the local radio, the local TV stations, um, and they keep trying to sort of mobilize more and more people there. Um, and then there are sort of national sort of clearing houses um, for information about this. Um, and then, of course, support groups and uh, political action committees. And so Fran, when she gets involved in that sort of more official side of being the mother of a disappeared girl, um, she goes in big for all of those things and goes out and gives motivational speeches and basically changes the kind of person that she is because this seems to her the best way, not not to sort of deal with her own emotions, but her real hopes that she might be able to get Kim back somehow. And that transformation is really interesting and, and subtle. Could you talk about creating that in in prose? And just because the, the prose and descriptions of her at the very beginning of the book, 
you can just see the, the, the words that you're using shift slowly and subtly to become, so, as she becomes somebody else, the language changes as well. Well, in the beginning, she's, she's filled with doubt, filled with sort of fear and despair, and, and she doesn't know. She doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know how to do it. Um, and yet she figures out very early on that she has to take some course of positive action, um, and she finds her way, and she becomes a very capable, very strong person, but kind of loses her way. How, how, what do you mean by she loses her way? That's an interesting observation. It, it seems that, that she loses her way in that the people that she should be closest to, she no longer is. The, the further and further she gets into that institutionalized world of being the mother of Kim, um, she falls further and further away from Lindsay, who really needs her, uh, and Ed, who also really needs her. And her relationship with the other two people sort of left in her life, they're both falling apart and she doesn't recognize it until far too late. And also she cuts herself off from Kim's friends because some of the secrets that they keep, she feels, prevented the police from searching for Kim effectively. And so she essentially just cuts them off. Um, Kim's best friend, Nina, just cuts her dead. Uh, JP, the boyfriend, cuts him dead um, because they're not assisting with the search. So for her, it's all the search, all the search. And, and one of the results of this search is the creation of this kind of really interesting community. It's a very intimate relationship with cat people you don't even know who will all of a sudden know the most intimate secrets in many times of your family. Could you talk about this kind of nebulous community? It's almost like a religion or a church. Well, especially if you're talking about the online community, which mm -hmm. suddenly comes in as sort of armchair detectives. There are people that, that sit at home and sort of cruise these websites of missing people, thinking that they can solve these disappearances. And in some cases, they actually do because they become obsessed with them. They become sort of taken over by them there. But again, for, for people like Fran and Ed, they feel that they have to sort of open up their lives and ask for the help of everybody because they know they can't do it by themselves. And that sometimes attracts people that are, are, are somewhat unbalanced. Did you talk to any of these armchair detectives in writing this book? Uh, no, but I followed their progression online in several of the different uh, websites and blogs there, and to see them sort of speculating as if they were in some, some sort of detective fiction. You know, they were all sort of speculating on these cases as if they were some sort of movie. Uh, rather than people's actual lives. Very, very strange. And yet, there are also millions of people who sent, uh, you know, condolences or their best wishes or their prayers, which I'm sure were, were you know, utterly in earnest. Um, it's just that, you know, people like Fran and Ed and, and Lindsay are in such a difficult situation that the hearts of regular people sort of go out to them. How could they not? One of, one of the things I think you do very well is talk about, uh, you know, the law enforcement procedures that are associated with looking for a missing person. But even though, as you say, we're dealing with some of the tropes of crime fiction, it doesn't read like crime fiction. Could you talk about talk, taking the substance of a genre fiction and giving it a different turn so it doesn't read exactly like genre fiction? Well, I think a good example of that is a, a section, early section, I think it's Fran's first section, which is called Victimology, um, in which the police detective takes her into a room and sits down with her and basically interrogates her as to 
Kim and Kim's recent doings and Kim's friends and her habits and her hangouts and things like that. And as Fran is answering all these questions, she realizes and we realize how little she really knows about Kim. And Kim, you know, has lived her entire life, you know, in that house with Fran. Fran should be closer to her than anybody else in the world. And yet she doesn't have answers for all these questions. She, she ends up, you know, far more fearful at the end of the interrogation. She's not um, satisfied at all. She's not, what's the word for it? Um, she's not relieved at all. She has no confidence in either the detective or her own relationship with Kim at the end of just sitting down and talking with him for about 25 minutes. What, let's talk a little bit about Ed because he's a really fascinating character. You know, he, he's the man of the house, and he does get out there in a can-do way, but he still manages to remain alone and becomes more so as, as, the, as the novel goes by. Could you talk about the language you use to create that character momentum? Well, Ed, Ed's change, especially sort of midway in the novel, he goes out to do the, the legwork. He, he wants to feel active and involved. And so he's going out and he's canvassing and he, he, he follows, you know, the trail of Kim out to another city and, and lives by himself in a, a motel for a while. And he's always seeing the world as sort of a problem that he can solve in a way. And at some point he stops believing that. At some point, he stops believing that his, as he says, his attention to detail and his hustle will be enough to sort of save them and to keep his family afloat. And he doesn't know exactly where to go from there. And so he's sort of stuck. And that, that sort of stuckness or stasis that, that grabs a hold of him about two-thirds of the way through the novel, um, it's, it's, it's frightening to him. He doesn't know how to deal with it. And so he reverts to what he knows best, which is his job. Um, and, and he goes back to selling real estate, even though the market's sort of fallen apart there. Um, in terms of language, I don't know if, I, if I've changed the use of language that much across it. What were you thinking of there? Uh, just in some, in some of the ways, uh, he's a, as you say, at the beginning, he's much more active. And as, as we go by, the language becomes more introspective and dreamlike. And, and his perspective, um, he becomes more uh, disconnected. From, from the from the world. There, yeah, I mean, the, the scenes that he's involved in often turn into the dreaded one-person scenes where he's not dealing with anybody else. He's just still very ruminative. He's trying to figure it out inside himself, and he can't find a way to do it. I mean, he sits in his car, you know, on top of the bluff overlooking the beach and the lighthouse and the harbor and just sort of smokes cigarettes there because he can't figure out what the hell else to do. Um, but he has to somehow keep busy. Um, and that, that's true also of, uh, of Fran as well. I and mean, they're terrified of, of not having something to do. But at some point, Ed realizes that nothing he does is going to help. Now you, And he's angry. <laughs> and then he becomes very, very angry. He becomes very angry against some of the people that he thinks might be um, responsible. Now, you um, talked about this book being about the schism between the adult world and the teenage world. And, and you navigate the teenage world, I think, really well. And, and could, how, how do you get those perceptions? <laughs> well, having teenagers. <laughs> right. uh, well, as I was writing the book, I, I had teenagers around the same age there and a lot of them hanging around the house. And also, it's, the book is also about that, that time in a, a family's life when the children are basically 
done being there in the house. They're about to leave. Um, and that day-to-day parenting um, is over. And so there, there has to be a new kind of way to live now, that, that sort of that empty nest syndrome. And that's, that's definitely part of it. And, and the children knowing that they're ready to leave and they're ready to go. Um, and the parents not quite knowing how to sort of move on with that. Well, uh, one of the things I, I really liked was um, the the trio of friends, uh, JP, um, uh, Fran, or not? Uh, Nina, Elise, and yeah, Nina and JP and Elise, there, yeah. yes. They're, they're a really interesting bunch I, because I think you have teenagers who, who there's a certain sweetness to, to I think much, many of the characters in this book, they're, they're not, Cloyingly so, they're they're all kind of. Yeah, uh, I, I never think of them as sweet, but. Uh. <laughs> the, well, that's I think that's I think the uh, the leavening factor that you that you sought the the, um, what was the term you used? Um, the the to to some sort of relief, the radiance. Yeah, maybe? yeah radiance. Yes, the radiance I think comes from this inner core. None of these characters are particularly bad. This is an yeah. interesting novel where there's yeah. no bad guys. But could you talk a little bit about? creating these characters and the, and the secrets that they keep and how um, that changes them from within? Well, the, the teenage characters, Nina, JP, and Elise, um, they're, they hang out. Um, they're, they're, not, they're not bad kids. They're not great kids. They're kind of sort of in the middle there. And they've been involved in certain things that you know, would get them into trouble legally um, if the police knew about them. And even though Kim's disappearance should trump that, should you know, make them immediately go to the police and tell them everything, um, they think that it's okay for them to keep these secrets because they don't see these secrets as sort of getting in the way of the police and their investigation. But it begins to wear and eat away at both Nina uh, and JP, and they think they, they really should be telling these secrets. They can't quite bring themselves to do it because of this sort of code of silence or this code of honor that they have to each other. And so it takes them too long to sort of bring these secrets to light. And it it wears on them. It wears on the way that they see themselves as blameless. They want to think that they're good people, um, but there's some guilt attached to those secrets and the fact that they sort of hang on to them too long. Um, And there's also an attraction between JP, who had, who had never sort of, was never sort of loved, I guess, the way that he had wished he was loved by Kim. Their relationship was somewhat convenient and relatively over uh, by the time that Kim disappeared. Um, and so JP's in the false position of being the grieving boyfriend when, in fact, they were not going to be together after that summer anyway there. Um, and Nina, I think, feels even, even guiltier because she has been the keeper of all of Kim's secrets. Um, And in the process of of the investigation, she basically has to give them up, uh, those secrets, one by one, everything that she knows. There's a a, a great number of great scenes with JP that, you know, get some kind of Dostoevsky feeling of crime and self-punishment going. (laughs) Oh, yeah. How he feels like an intruder. I I love that that sense of feeling like he's an intruder. He's, of all the characters, I think he's the most insecure. He's certainly the most immature. Um, And he's the one who knows least what to do with his feelings because he's not sure what they are. And he becomes somewhat, um, uh, what's the word for it? Um, At least when he's away at college, his first year at college, he becomes... Kind of, kind of falls apart in a way because he just doesn't know what he's doing. He becomes somewhat self-destructive 
I think. Uh, and Nina, where Nina tries to pull herself together, um, JP kind of sort of breaks himself apart. Again, all stemming back from that guilt and that guilt of having survived, even though really, you know, if you look back at it, they hadn't done anything really that wrong. Uh, but Fran doesn't see it that way. Uh, Ed may see it that way. Fran doesn't see it that way. And it becomes another issue between them. One of the the uh, lovely parts is, is about how Nina, she pretends to be something and eventually becomes it. It's right out of Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> well, and, and also right out of what Kim was saying in her first paragraph, that idea of becoming someone else. And when Nina goes away to college, she sort of puts away that, that high school person that she was very consciously, puts it away as if at some other time she'll bring it back out because that's the real her, but discovers that she is or sees herself or feels that she is a better person this way, which is, I don't know, is that maturity or not? Her mother sees it as maturity, whereas uh, Elise just sees it, or Nina sees it um, as becoming Elise, as becoming the good one. She's always talking about, you know, well, everybody loves Elise, and so essentially she becomes Elise. Uh, the the journey made by, by Lindsay is really fascinating because we actually do get to see her grow up in, in a very a very significant manner um, from somebody who's essentially de- defines herself. And again, this is there's this uh, um, theme of self-definition in relation to other people. She defines herself at the beginning of the novel as Kim's younger, smarter, but somewhat shy and geeky little sister. And her nickname is Little Larson. Now, when they, they go to this camp together, and Kim is always the, the bigger, stronger, faster, more accomplished, prettier. Um, she is sort of, you know, the golden child. And then there's Lindsay sort of, you know, dragging along in the rear as little Larson. And as, as Kim goes missing and the parents sort of don't know what to do about it, Lindsay kind of gets lost a little bit there in the mix. And because of that, she becomes her own person. She becomes much stronger. And she defines herself in ways against her parents and against Kim. Um, and she has to find her own way. And it's, it's I think, you know, very painful for her. And yet she does it. She becomes, in a, in a very unexpected way for me, she becomes very strong. She becomes a very, very strong young woman. And in the end, I think she, she finds her way out of Kingsville to be someone else the way that Kim would have wanted to. And, and I think that's a really interesting uh, journey because it's a journey that, that combines and entwines both deep pain and a, a joy of, of finding yourself. Well, it's that transformation um, and uh, of going through some sort of fire and coming out the other side. And of all the people in, in the book, she becomes the most different, I think. But uh, necessarily, she has to to survive. And it's not easy. And, and often it's, it's not pretty. But she does. This novel involves a, a lot of talk and thought about guilt and survivor guilt. Did you do any research into the psychology of those who are left behind after these disappearances? A little bit, I guess, in just looking at how people represent the missing person. Um, now, and that's an interesting thought. Ta- ta- talk about that. Um, well, I mean, obviously when, when someone is, disappears and is never coming back, um, or has been murdered, um, or has been lost somehow, there is a tendency to canonize that person within the family, that they become the saintly person, that all of their 
problems that they had before, all of their bad qualities are, are somehow forgotten or smoothed over. And when that happens, often the other people, the siblings in the family, um, become very conflicted about it. Um, and, and I was looking very hard at, at Lindsay and seeing how she was going to take the idea that Kim, who had always been pretty hard on her, um, was suddenly going to be, you know, raised to the status of a saint. Uh, Lindsay, you know, could not bear that in a way. Whereas uh, Fran or Ed, uh, they saw their way clear to actually doing that, even though they knew that she wasn't perfect and that they didn't know her there. Now, one of the things that you talk about, and you have this really great percep- uh, perception, um, Ed says, he, he realizes that grief becomes an addiction for him. Oh, did I say that? Yes. I oh, so. shit. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh, um, talk, talk a little bit about the guilt of survivors, both in this book and in The Night Country, where you have a, a very similar theme. And, and could you talk about the, the differences in between those two? And, oh, I don't know if I can. I don't know, I don't know if, I can, if I can, you know, see the differences from book to book there, since I wrote them, you know, sort of far apart. But that idea of, of you surviving your children, obviously, is, is an unbearable one there. But also, there's the very practical sense of we have to move on. We have to keep going. We have to live day to day. We can't stop. Um, you know, it, killing ourselves is not going to help. Um, or just stopping and sort of falling apart is not going to help. So it's a question of how much to grieve and how to grieve and when to grieve. Um, and that comes at very different rates for people, so that often uh, one, the husband, um, will be, have given up and will be grieving while the wife is still, in this case, Fran, fighting and, and fighting very hard to try to do something positive and will look and see the husband is just giving up. And that can cause great, great tension that, that often breaks up couples that, that have missing children, um, Whereas the, the grief that Lindsay has is, is at times um, self-directed um, and it, or misdirected even. Um, in terms of survivor guilt in the night country uh, in which three people in the car die and one person in the car lives, um, that has the, the effect of almost like there's this lightning bolt that came down and it took these three people and didn't take me why. I can't figure out why, and it, it, and and the the especially when you're young, that idea that you were spared but others were taken begins to sort of weigh on you and weigh on you because it seems almost random, um, and, and and it may be. Uh, in both cases, it's that that not knowing what to feel or how to feel, and looking at the people around you, and they don't feel the way that you feel, and you think, is it me? Am I crazy? Um, and I think that's very, very common. One of the things that this must have been a, a was this a hard book to write emotionally? I mean, you were living these characters' lives, I, I, I'm guessing, and, and it sounds like that's they're not happy lives. Yeah, it's it's tough. You know, it, it's always tough when you you take on a, a subject like this, a heavy subject like this. Um, but you know, I like spending time with with all the characters. Uh, sometimes they do things that. Yeah, I might not have done, or other people might not have done. But I, my my goal was just to sort of be true to them, and stay close to them, and, and figure out how are they feeling, how are they doing it, because that's the mystery to me: is how do you do it? 
You know, how, how do you get through the days when something like this has happened? Um, it's got to be done somehow. And, and, and the people do it, and they're doing it right now out there. How they do it, you know, day after day after day and keep going and having the faith to keep going when, when things are really, really bad, worse than you can ever imagine. That, that to me, is, is sort of heroic. And that's, that's when I think of people, good people facing really, really hard times. Um, this is a, a classic uh, American novel, I think. It's very, very American. Oh, I think, I think most of my books are super American. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're, they're very super American. They're, they're about, you know, just regular. Most of them are about just regular people. They're about regular people facing um, almost unbearable burdens and finding a way to do it um, day after day after day. And, and what do you have to fall back on? You know, what do you have that's going to keep you going? You know, is it, is it family? Um, is it church? Is it the town? Is it the sense of the future? Is it the sense of yourself? You know, who are you going to be responsible to? Um, in this case, I, I hope that I've left room enough in the book, as in some other books, for the reader to come in and think hard about themselves and about the people that are closest to them um, and their, their own lives and their own history. I mean, that's, that's to me is, is the idea when the reader sort of brings their own life into the book and, and finds something there and connects to it. Well, that, that actually really does happen. You start to feel like this is your town and, and you can project your own, the people in your town and the kind of relationships that you share with those people into this book and it, because it's quite well rendered. And I wanted to talk to you about creating now. This is a difficult task because on one hand, you can go in the direction of, you know, too specific um, and, and lose some of the timelessness. And I think these books, your books have a very timeless feel. You can read them 100 years from now. You could have read them 100 years ago and they would still, we'd still really understand and there wouldn't be a lot of uh, time-specific so things. There's, there's going to be a red lobster 100 years from now? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I, no, I, I, I tend to go more specific, I think, um, and, and err on that side. I mean, if 100 years from now a reader can tell me what a big Kit Kat is versus a regular Kit Kat, that's a hell of a reader. Um, but I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm tending to write these for now and to, to see, you know, what it's like right now. I, for a while, I wasn't writing contemporary novels. Um, I was writing either historical fiction, things like Prayer for the Dying, or um, uh, A World Away, uh, Names of the Dead. And, and these took place, you know, in a historical context. And I tried to be contemporary within that historical context and stick to that era. But in the last few books, I've been writing about things that are absolutely contemporary right now. Um, I, I'm not sure why, um, but, but I am. So when people look back and look at the summer of 2005 that's in this book or 2006, 2007, they're going to find goofy stuff like, you know, Franz Ferdinand or The Killers or, you know, a lot of pop culture that's around at that time. Um, and it, it may date, I think, but you hope that the, the power of the book, you hope, is within the characters um, and within the way that they see one another. Um, you hope. Now, as a novelist, you, you set yourself a particularly difficult goal with this book because you're writing a book that, and, and yet you do a really, it, it also conversely makes it a quite a, a, a compelling, you know, can't put it down read because you're writing a book where the reader has a good suspicion that nothing may 
ever actually happen in a sense. <laughs> Talk about writing that and creating that, uh, that tension and dealing with that as a writer. Uh, well, uh, the, I, I guess the sort of the, the tension at the beginning of Kim's disappearance, mm-hmm. the question of will that disappearance be conventionally satisfied in terms mm-hmm. of a narrative line? Mm-hmm. That is, will there be discovery and then there will be disclosure and then there will be some sort of denouement and we'll come to a place of rest? No, that's not going to happen. But, of course, that's not the book that it is. Um, and I think, you know, about halfway through the book, I, I would hope that the, the reader understands that the book's focus is not on Kim, who has not appeared since page seven, um, but upon the people who are left behind and how they're going to keep going. It's a, it's a book like Last Night at the Lobster or The Good Wife, which is about endurance. That's really what the book is about. If it were a sort of a more plotted book, I think it would be a lot longer, um, a lot longer. Um, but at, at around 320 pages, I think it's I think it's about the right size for moving around and showing the, the reader, you know, these five people and, and the different ways that they try to go on with their lives there. Um, how did you write this book? I mean, I, I'm curious because you have a lot of really interesting elements, you know, that are some, you have these characters and, and you have this uh, a disappearance and you have the town. Did you just uh, write this book, start on with the first paragraph you read to us and finish up towards the end or... Well, like, like I said, I've been writing this book for about 10 years. So <laughs> I, I tried many, many different ways in. Um, the what, what now is the first chapter was probably after about six years of trying, I finally decided that that was the way and that that was the right way to go. Um, and, and so it was probably my 40th or 50th try at an opening. Uh, once I got that and once I realized the book wasn't about Kim, it wasn't about, it really wasn't about her disappearance. You know, it starts with that, but that's not what the book is about. And once I figured that out, once I figured out that it's really about these other five people, I pretty much wrote it start to finish. And there were certain places where I had to go back and fix things and change things. But basically, I spent about two years just sort of like, figuring out who these people were and, and keeping notebooks on them and just you know going through the world wearing their mask and seeing what would sort of affect them, what they would see versus what one of them wouldn't see. Um, and, and to look really hard at what kind of people they were. Well, that's really fascinating. Now, uh, you have separate notebooks for every character? Yeah. Yeah, I uh, yeah I get I get a little obsessive in trying to get to know the character because I I use the, that old Hemingway te- technique of the iceberg, that is you know what the reader is seeing is just one little bit of what is really underneath or what's really going on and they they divine much of the rest from that little bit of the iceberg that they can see but to create that iceberg I have to make an even bigger iceberg you know so I can figure out you know who these people are and, and what they mean to each other. Um, I wonder if I have that with me here today. Oh, yeah. Here you go. This is a notebook that I'm keeping now for a new book. And this is about uh, a woman named Emily. And oh, wow. So this is my notes on Emily. And you'll see that, gosh, you know, we're just <laughs> learning about her. I may never use these. I mean, they never, ever use these wow, notes about incredible. her. <laughs> That's a whole notebook filled with notes. That's like a, a hundred, yeah, it's like about two hundred pages. Two hundred pages of yeah. notes on, and, and they're just little things that just pop up and hit me. 
so that any time I see something, I say, oh, that fits Emily. That's the word Emily would use. That's the thing Emily would see. Emily doesn't like that. Emily likes that. Um, so when you get to carry that, that person around with you all the time, naturally you're going to take into account every little thing, and you get to learn about their whole life. That is like the ultimate, I think, pleasure and the ultimate indulgence as a writer to, to be completely curious about other people. And in this case, just one other person, just pour everything into that character and know more about them than they know about themselves. That's fascinating. So like many writers, you, you're an eavesdropper. Oh, oh, of course. Oh, in, in a big, big way. <laughs> an eavesdropper, you know, I'll steal little bits from here and there. Um, but again, you're given the license to write about an entire life. You know, and lately the books that I've been writing have been very, very heavy with memory, I think. There, were, there are places in people's lives where they're really taking stock of what have they done? You know, how has life treated me? Where am I? What have I done with this life? In this case, the woman's 78 years old, and she's looking back, and, and she's thinking, you know, how was this? You know, how did I do? You know, and, and worrying about her family and her children and her grandchildren and the world, and, you know, how did I fit into the world? I could have done more. I wish I had done this. I wish I had done that. So, it's, again, it's a taking stock. Wow, that's really fascinating. So uh, how far are you into this book? Have you written any of the prose? Uh, yeah, I'm about, uh, about 215 pages, and I got, to, I got today's pages with me. Oh, wow. Oh, you got to keep it close. You got to keep it close to yourself. And you know, I revised a little bit this morning, not a lot. But, yes, yeah, page, page 214, so about two-thirds of the way through. I just got a new four-color pen to start hacking at. <laughs> now, My old one, uh, two of the colors ran out. Now, do you write on a on a computer? Um, it depends. You know, obviously here I'm out on tour, so you know I don't have my computer with me. I don't I don't carry it with me all the time. But I brought the pages with me, and I brought part of an outline of where I think I might be going next with it. And I'll just keep chipping away a little by little. My my goal is for every day to write one double space page of 300 words, so I can spend a lot of time, you know, maybe too much time on the language. I, I'm trying not to be you know, you, you try not to be too poetic. You try to be sort of a clean, straight, you know, spoken line. Uh, now, the line I'm working with in this book is a lot longer than the line that I was working with in, in Song. Song is a shorter line to it. You mean the uh, the the narrative line? The, no, the, no, the the actual line of the prose, the prose oh. line, the amount of syllables per line, the um, the amount of say independent clauses that you sort of jam in there. Um, in this <laughs> wow. case, my 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 character's uh, level of education um, is, is much higher, and her her natural speech pattern is a lot more complex. Um, and, and she's she's always throughout her life tried to be a sophisticated person, and so um, some of that comes through in the prose, sometimes in an ironic way. Could you talk about uh, your process of rewriting? I can see <laughs> it's mm. fairly complicated with a four-color pen. That's well, interesting. You just, you just keep, you know, I, I write from basically from, sad to say, from sound to sound. Um, not even sentence to sentence, but from sound to sound. Um, and so in the writing, it's very sort of painstaking. Work very, very slowly. Try to get each sound right, each word right, each sentence right, each piece of punctuation right. Um, it's very sort of the old, uh, you know, like Flaubert. I mean, it's, it's, it's 
not the way to write, I think. You know, it's not it's not the, the best way to write. I mean, I wish I could just sort of like gush and just like pour it out. And some people write like four or five, six pages a day or they have a big rambling 700-page novel. You know, I wish I could do that. I guess I'm probably in, in my composition process, I'm a little too careful. Um, I hope that doesn't come through too much um, in the final in, in the final edit. I sometimes try to iron things out in the final edit so it's much more declarative get rid of punctuation and, and be more sort of fluent or fluid and just keep moving forward. Um, There's a yeah, real handcrafted feel to your well, to yeah, your book. I mean, it's, it's like and a that's beautiful piece of furniture. No, well, no it's beautiful. You don't, want, you don't want it to be too beautiful. You want it to be plain. You want it to be like shaker furniture. You want it to be plain and functional. And Because really the ultimate um, focus should not be on the language. It should mm-hmm. not be on sort of the literary structure. All that stuff should just be in support of the story that you're telling. It should be about the characters and their hearts and their feelings and how they feel you know, about each other and the world, um, their lives and their situation. That's what it's always got to be about. I'd much rather have the prose be wrong and the structure be wrong as long as the story comes through. Uh, but in this, this is the only way I know how to work. So to get you know, the story to come through, I feel I have to get the prose right. I've tried writing two books without sort of an ear in them, and I don't think they turned out quite as well. Because I, I worry about the, the surface of the prose being, of, of all American prose, all American writing, being too perfect. Because we have a lot of people, I think, that can write a beautiful surface. Um, the, but the surface isn't the important thing. No, well, it's the the emotional lives of the characters that the reader comes to inhabit in that reading experience. When you read and the, transform the words into your brain, it's a magical right. thing. It's, it's the intimacy with the characters, and, and that's worth you know way more than you know an extended metaphor or something like that, you know, or, <laughs> or a goofy premise, or you know. But then again, you know, I'm not writing um, ultra literary books. My books are pretty plain, pretty plain spoken. Um, I think I would hope that that anybody, you know, at the, by the age of say seventeen or eighteen, can read the books and get them. Oh yeah, no, it's they're 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 in many ways simple, but they they have a, a very complicated feel to them. A complicated set of emotions comes across and, and, and well, the tangled I, relationships. Well, I hope I hope they're complex. I hope that's what what people used to call you know uh, difficult or hard feelings, difficult emotions, hard feelings. Um, I hope that, especially what I'm writing now, the last few books are are adult books. Mm-hmm. Um, they're talking about, I hope, important things, and that's that's what you always hope when you sit down. And you say, "This is what I want to show the reader. This is what I think is important." Um, One of the things that that comes across in your this book <laughs> is, uh, and and it's wonderfully handled and subtle in the background, are the you know the fiscal woes of your characters. And what's interesting is that they, that Ed tries to hide it almost from himself. He certainly hides it from the family, and, and he tries to almost hide it from himself. Yeah, well, again, maybe some of that sort of a, a bleeds through from Last Night at the Lobster. The, the idea of success in America uh, meaning so much, financial success meaning personal success, and then the you know financial woes meaning personal failure. Um, and it's very difficult for Ed because the real estate market is just tanking there, and yet he believes in the town. You know, he believes in this is a good place to live, and yet the numbers aren't backing that up. Um, and it means that they're losing money, and he's in trouble. 
they're in trouble money-wise. And he sees this as a failure, and he, he can't, he doesn't want to admit it to himself. He doesn't want to admit that things will always keep going this way. Um, so he has to sort of hide it. Now, tell us a little bit more about your new book. You, we have a 78-year-old character. Uh, is she the only character in the book? or She's the, the only um, narrating point of view type character. It's mm -hmm. actually a sequel to a novel of mine called Wish You Were Here, which came out in 2002. And this is Emily, who is the, sort of the matriarch of the Maxwell family. And this is uh, her back in Pittsburgh um, by herself. Um, and, and right now the working title is uh, Emily Alone. And it's, she's nearing the end of her life. And one of the very few friends that she has is Arlene, her sister-in-law. Um, and her husband, Henry, died about nine years ago. And Arlene is basically the only person that she has. But she doesn't like Arlene. Uh, <laughs> and she never has liked Arlene. Um, Emily is a difficult person. Uh, and Arlene is somewhat of a difficult person. And yet there, there they are together there, and they have to find a way to sort of take care of each other because they don't have anybody else. Um, and this follows, you know, Emily through her daily life and, and through the sort of the, the calendar of her particular set of people in Pittsburgh. They go to the flower show, and uh, right now the, um, the presidential uh, primary is coming up in the April 2008 inside the book there. And so she's going to look back upon her life and who she's voted for and why and who she hasn't voted for and why not. And we'll have to come, you know, and, and make a choice when she goes into those polls uh, on, I think it's April 22nd, 2008, when she steps in there. Um, wow. So, so it's, yeah, it's neat. It just it sort of follows these, these seasons in her life mm -hmm. and in how she's doing. And she has a dog, you know, who's, who's very old and very bad shape. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been worrying the last few days that he's not going to make it. He's going to die um, before the end of the book. And, and what that will do to Emily, I don't know. Right now I'm not sure. Um, but he's he's old. He's very, he's probably older than he deserves to be. Um, so that's, it's tough. But little things, very little things like that. And she's living in the same house she's lived in for the last 50-something years um, because she doesn't want to go into an assisted living place. Um, and yet a lot of her friends are there. I think she's going to visit one, I'm thinking, um, in a few weeks. But we'll see. We'll see. So it, it means I'm spending a lot of time with her. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I like her a lot. Um, it's, it's not like Last Night at the Lobster. It's not a premise that I think a New York you know, editor would be jumping up and down going, oh, thank God, you know, hooray, you know, it's a, look, you know, crazy, you know, crazy vampires that are, you know. But you, you write what you think is important. You write what you, what's, you know, what you hold close to yourself. And you hope that the reader, you know, will see that in the character, that the reader will see, I mean, the character is, is worthy of and capable of love and, and, and trying to do the best they can. And you hope the reader will come along for that ride. I've been speaking with Stuart Arnam. His new book is Songs for the Missing. Thank you for joining me, Stuart. Oh, thank you, Ray. They spoke casually, as if they hadn't been apart for months. They'd emailed at the start of the semester, but soon he stopped. And while she was disappointed, she was also relieved, imagining he was busy. The last time she'd seen him, he seemed quiet and tired, as if everything was too much and he was shutting down. Maybe it was just her. The end of summer had been a mess. She just wanted to leave. Being back made her feel old and strange, as if she no longer had a place here. 
It wasn't like school where she could get away with a disguise. The town was the same. Not a single thing had changed. Obviously, the problem was with her. Outside, the sky was low and gray, and it was warm enough to snow, stray flakes swirling on the wind. Her mom had run out to the store earlier and warned her that the roads were bad, but now they were just slushy. It had been months since she'd driven, and as she swung onto buffalo, plowed and salted down to the asphalt, a pleasant feeling of freedom came over her, as if, in the car, she could go anywhere and nothing could touch her. False, of course, since she was on her way to Elise's and then the game, where she would stand in front of the crowd like someone condemned, but for an instant, before everything settled onto her again, she felt what she suspected was normal. These moments had been more frequent lately. She didn't trust them, as if they were a kind of escape, and countered by consciously remembering Kim that last day, walking back to their cars, her tattoo and her bathing suit. See you there, squinky square. Like a cutter with her secret blade, the pain both released and returned her to herself. The most terrible thing in the world, she thought, was how easy it was to forget. They spoke casually, as if they hadn't been apart for months. They'd emailed at the start of the semester, but soon he stopped. And while she was disappointed, she was also relieved, imagining he was busy. The last time she'd seen him, he seemed quiet and tired, as if everything was too much and he was shutting down. Maybe it was just her. The end of summer had been a mess. She just wanted to leave. Being back made her feel old and strange, as if she no longer had a place here. It wasn't like school where she could get away with a disguise. The town was the same. Not a single thing had changed. Obviously, the problem was with her. Outside, the sky was low and gray, and it was warm enough to snow, stray flakes swirling on the wind. Her mom had run out to the store earlier and warned her that the roads were bad, but now they were just slushy. It had been months since she'd driven, and as she swung onto buffalo, plowed and salted down to the asphalt, a pleasant feeling of freedom came over her, as if, in the car, she could go anywhere and nothing could touch her. False, of course, since she was on her way to Elise's and then the game, where she would stand in front of the crowd like someone condemned, but for an instant, before everything settled onto her again, she felt what she suspected was normal. These moments had been more frequent lately. She didn't trust them, as if they were a kind of escape, and countered by consciously remembering Kim that last day, walking back to their cars, her tattoo and her bathing suit. See you there, squinky square. Like a cutter with her secret blade, the pain both released and returned her to herself. The most terrible thing in the world, she thought, was how easy it was to forget.